guys were at the, the men's conference last weekend, the Engage conference. Raise your hand. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, we had a great time of fellowship, uh, of hearing from God's Word. I'm not just saying that because I was one of the speakers, but uh, I was, I was, incur- I was uh, given the, the, um, the section of Scripture uh, by Clay. Clay did, did a great job of preparing, uh, preparing the whole event, and he gave me 1 Kings 18. Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And so, uh, when Rick asked me, hey, will you preach the following weekend? I said, yeah, sure. He said, what do you want to preach on? You can preach on anything. And I said, I'll preach on 1 Kings 18. Smart, right? So, this is not the same sermon. I, I'm going to adjust it. I'm going I'm to change it. Last time at the men's conference, we looked at how to engage and commit and today we're going to look at idolatry. So no, Michael Purrington, you don't get to you don't get to skip out. No, sit down, Lynn, grab him, please. Okay. No, uh, we're going to look at it, and hope, and there will be some overlap. But hopefully that will be that will be beneficial for you uh, guys who are there as well. Let me pray for us, uh, Lord. Uh, use uh, use me today uh, to to help us examine the idolatry in our lives. Um, Spirit, go before me, that we would have uh, eyes to see, that we would have ears to hear, that we would uh, be open to looking at the sin and the idolatry in our lives, that we would be uh, willing to to address it, to topple those idols. Um, God, we thank you for your word, and uh, we praise you, we love you, amen. All right, um, we see throughout the Bible, we see Israel's history with idolatry. They have a long relationship. When God chose Abraham, He told him to leave everything. He told him to leave his country, his kindred, his family, and his idols. And Abraham calls Yahweh the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And God established this covenant of circumcision with Abraham. And he he was to be alone, the God that Abraham would worship, Abraham and his offspring. And so Abraham chose to follow God. And he demonstrated this by by, uh, circumcising every male in his family. But idolatry followed. And later when Moses led his people out of Egypt and of slavery, he called them away from the false gods of Pharaoh. And the Israelites left Egypt, but they didn't leave idolatry. Moses' successor, Joseph, he proclaims at the end of his life, he says in Joshua 24, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve whether the gods of your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God, and we will obey His voice. But they didn't, and eventually they fell into idol worship again. And in the books of First and Second Kings, we have the succession of kings that follow King David, a man after God's own heart. But right away with uh, David's son Solomon, we see he's eventually lured into idolatry by his many wives. And the succession of kings that follow sink deeper and deeper into idolatry and violence and injustice. 
as they fail to follow God and His laws for His people. And so we also see the rise of prophets to speak against idolatry on God's behalf, calling out false worship and false injustice. And they challenge the leaders to repent. They challenge the leaders to follow the Torah. And one of those prophets was Elijah. And I think today as we look at Elijah's encounter with the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18, we're going to see that as God's people, as His children, as those who trust in God, we need to recognize that idols uh, are alluring, but they're ultimately uh, imaginary and empty and harmful and exhausting, and they completely undermine the gospel. And so Elijah called out the king of the northern kingdom, who was Ahab, and his wife Jezebel, for their, false, uh, their worship of false gods and for their injustice to God's people. And so we're going to be in uh, 1 Kings 18, like I said, but, but turn with me to 1 Kings 16, 29, just a couple chapters before. 1 Kings 16, 29, where it says, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. It says that he married Jezebel and went to serve Baal and worshiped him. Verse 32, so he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And there had been some pretty evil kings uh, before him as well. But the queen was no saint either. Queen Jezebel was trying to kill off the prophets of Yahweh. These were men who were, who were declaring that the Lord alone was God. And Jezebel saw, saw these godly men as a threat to the people. And the polytheism of that time, it, it, was, it was open to new gods. If, God was, if Yahweh was powerful, they would add him to their worship. There was always room for more. And the worshiper's job was to appease these gods so that they could reap the benefits for their families and for their land. They would make or they would purchase an idol, uh, usually a statue of a god, and they would appease their wrath by, by keeping them happy, by providing them food or worshiping them or keeping their shrine tidy. And uh, when I was in Indonesia, uh, you would see these shrines everywhere, and in the morning there would be fresh flowers and food or incense burning in front of them. Because idolatry is alluring. Now, as Westerners, we, we struggle to understand the attraction of idolatry in the ancient world. What is so captivating about an inanimate block of wood or a chunk of stone? Idolatry, it seems as, as tempting as a kale smoothie to me. <laughs> but idolatry was obviously tempting to God's people. And so, Doug Stewart, in his commentary on Exodus, he explains idolatry's attraction in the ancient world. He says that idolatry was guaranteed. You carve out a, uh, a block of wood or stone, the God enters the, the icon, then you do the right incantation, you get the right results. Who wouldn't want that? Idolatry was selfish. You scratch the God's backs and they'll scratch yours. Though they were powerful, the gods needed humans to feed them. And so, they need food and sacrifices, you need blessings, do what is required, and the gods were obliged to help you. Idolatry was easy. 
Sure, you need to show up and offer uh, to your sacrifice, but, but ancient religion demanded little in the way of ethical standards or personal sacrifice. To be a good Canaanite, you didn't have to follow this elaborate moral code. You just had to put food on the altar. So long as you show up consistently with your sacrifices, you're good. Idolatry was convenient. Gods in the ancient world weren't hard to come by. There were religious uh, franchises all over the place. Uh, statues could be on the ho- in the home, on the go, wherever you are. Idolatry was normal. Everyone did it, and it was everywhere. And it was how women got pregnant, and how crops grew, and how armies were conquered. Idolatry was integrated into every aspect of life. Idolatry was logical. The thinking was nations are different, people are different, their needs are different, so deities should be different. You don't eat at just one restaurant, right? The more options, the better. It made sense that there were lots of gods who specialized in one area of blessing or held sway over one part of the cosmos. Idolatry was pleasing to the senses. There was an appeal to aesthetics and to beauty, and there was something to see and do and smell and taste in in idolatry. It was probably more entertaining and probably felt more relevant than an invisible deity. Idolatry was indulgent. Meat was relatively rare, and people just didn't have uh, herds of cattle to, to offer. And so when they sacrificed, if they sacrificed meat or, or, or drink, then they got to enjoy that themselves. And so result took on a party atmosphere filled with drunkenness and with gluttony. And idolatry was erotic. During ritual worship, it was believed that if the worshipers played the parts of Baal and Asherah, and they had sex, it would stimulate the deities in heaven to have sex. And when the gods and goddesses had sex, when I was writing this, I didn't realize I was going to keep saying have sex, but it, it's, it's clear to me now. All right, it, it, meant, it, meant, it meant that they would procreate, right? Which meant earthly blessings for, for their crops and for uh, rain and health and good harvests. And so, when we put it that way, we can see why idolatry was attractive and still enticing today. Now, I don't think the problem is that that you have these these little statues hidden around your house, and if I were to come over, you'd be like, honey, hide the idols. Pastor Tim's here, right? I don't think you're shuffling to, to get rid of these things. But we can make an idol out of anything. Your career, your family, your children, spouse, achievement, political causes, physical attractiveness, romance, human approval, power, comfort, financial security. These are all good things, and when they become God things, they're idols for us. So, what is idolatry? Pastor uh, Tim Keller says in his book, uh, Counterfeit Gods, he says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what you give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say, in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. And there are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best is worship. And the Israelites, they were, they were worshiping other gods. They were worshiping Baal and Asherah alongside Yahweh. But the God of Elijah declared that He alone was God. He wasn't to be appeased with food or with gifts. 
Yahweh was a jealous God. He wasn't to be worshipped alongside any other God. So Baal was the Canaanite and Phoenician fertility God. It was believed that Baal enabled the earth to produce crops and people to produce children. And he's often pictured with a lightning bolt in his hand. It was thought that Baal controlled the sun and the rain and lightning and thunder. Baal worship was rooted in sensuality involving sexual immorality and all kinds of things, including sex trafficking and prostitution and homosexuality in the temples, as well as child sacrifice. And the cultural elitists of our day, they would cringe, right, at this primitive culture. But it's amazing how little has changed. Sexuality for our culture is religious. It is the deepest and truest realization and only the heretic tries to, tries to reason or argue against it. When we go out and we talk to people about abortion, people are they're still killing their children for what they think will be a better life. Now understand that the gods of idolatry, are, they're imaginary. Paul declares in Romans 1 that all of creation is evidence of a creator, and all of reality proclaims God. That's why I believe our society is moving away from reality. They claim that there's, there's more than two sexes, not just genders, or some claim to be non-binary, non-sex identifying, that men have periods, that children can decide that they are the opposite sex, that homosexual couples can have infertility benefits. Think about that for a minute. They claim it's okay to kill the unwanted in our society, that shouting your abortion is a good and noble expression. Killing your unborn child is what it means to be enlightened and progressive and even compassionate. Romans 1, for even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And then in verse 24, it says, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. And in verse 26, it says, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. And in verse 28, it says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, He gave them over to a depraved mind. And so, Scripture tells us that the result is going to be shame and painful consequences and wickedness and greed and evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, that God and His people would be hated, that there will be general disrespect, arrogance, boasting, disobedience to authority, confusion, suspicion, and a lack of love and mercy. And not only that is true, but there will be great pressure to tolerate and to approve of lust and degradation and depravity. And so, as Christians, we, we shouldn't be surprised by this. We shouldn't be surprised by what we see in our world today. We have created and worshiped false gods, which aren't real at all, but are imagined. And are really, they're really just an excuse not to trust in God, to reject the true God. And this is the root of sin. Idolatry is the essence of all sin. God had declared that through Elijah, that there would be no rain in the kingdom. 
And three and a half years later, Ahab's kingdom was in severe drought. In Deuteronomy 28, it promised that drought would come as the consequence of Israel's disobedience. But the drought was also this opportunity for the Lord God to expose Ahab's false god. And the drought and the famine that was incurring, it was a daily reminder for Ahab that Baal was not producing, that he was not gaining favor from him, that the Baal was impotent. Ahab's leadership and Baal's ability were both called into question from this drought. And then God tells Elijah that he's going to make it rain. And he says, go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17. Follow along with me. It says, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? Verse 18, Elijah responds, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. And so Ahab, he blames Elijah. He's the problem, right? And as Christians, we're often seen as troublemakers. We are labeled as hateful and close-minded, bigoted, the ones that are in the way of progress. And we need to respond that, in fact, they are the ones in danger by opposing God. We need to respond that there is good news to the problem of sin and death. We have to get that across, and here's why. Christian no longer means someone who believes that they were rescued uh, from sin by Jesus so, so that we would devote our lives trusting in Him. In a post-Christian culture, people have no idea what Christians believe. They have no idea what Christianity teaches. So it's okay if we're hated for the gospel. It's okay if we're hated for following and being united with Christ. But it's nothing, it does nothing for the cause of Christ. If we're hated because of our political party or our ideology or our philosophy of life. So God was going to make it rain in Samaria. And without this revelation from Elijah, without this confrontation, the people would have just praised Baal, right? Baal's back in business, doing what he's supposed to. The same thing happens when we don't reveal the truth of God. We have to be in the public sphere, and we have to be in the private lives of those around us, talking about the love of God and what sin is and what idolatry looks like, that God alone is real, and He's the author of all reality. When God revealed the Ten Commandments through Moses, He was giving us a list, not only of His perfect character, but also instructions on how Israel should act to have relationship with the Holy God. And God, He made the first commandment the first. I think He did it on purpose. He did it for a reason, because breaking any of the other nine commandments also breaks the first commandment, which is, you shall have no other gods before me. For instance, take the ninth commandment, do not lie. Why do we lie? Because we're sinners, right? But, but why lie this particular time and not another? What is the heart issue? What is the idol beneath that sin, that behavior? If we lie, it's because there's ultimately something more important to us. Maybe it's human approval, the fear of man. Maybe you, you don't want to lose the upper hand, the idol of power. Or you don't want to be seen as having failed morally, right? You're a Pharisee, the idol of religion. 
or you want to get out of some commitment, some responsibility, the idol of comfort. In all these cases, you're willing to compromise the truth to get something that's more important than keeping the first commandment. You're willing to lie to get something that is more valuable than God Himself and a relationship with Him. And so think about it. Sexual immorality and adultery and pornography, being in an unequally yoked relationship, underneath every behavioral sin is the sin of idolatry. But Elijah was obedient. He obeyed God. He was a fugitive, and he put his life on the line in meeting with Ahab. And we need to risk being dismissed or even seen as crazy for living lives in response to the gospel. If we are to be bringers of good things, the good news, we need to smash the idol of human approval in our lives. Now, verse 19 Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel. Gather with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And this is a demonstration of the depth of which Israel had fallen. Idolatry was was state-sponsored. The prophets of the false gods, they were supported and they were honored by the government of Israel. And what God had created as a means of protection and blessing for Israel, it's been wholly corrupted. Verse 20 says, So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And so know that idolatry is always harmful. And here's the crux of the passage, verse 21. It says, Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal, follow Him. And this word hesitate here is the word pasak, and it means to literally limp or hobble as if on crutches. And uh, if you've seen me lately, you know that I recently tore my ACL, and then I had surgery on it. I was on crutches for five weeks, and then a cane uh, for a week, and I'm still rehabilitating. And, and Michael Hernandez, if you, if you know him, he just uh, uh, hurt his knee as well. He was, he was sitting right here in first service. He was with his crutches and his brace, and he was all bandaged up. And I said, man, this message is going to speak to you more than maybe anyone else in this room. But besides, before I got hurt, I was, I was playing soccer, but, but I wasn't really exercising, right? I, I had got out of the habit of running, and so I wasn't doing, doing very much at the time. But now, man, I'm getting stronger every day, but, but, but I long, what I really long for is just to be able to run, to be healed enough to go, go for a jog, go for a run. Besides slowing me down, the injury has made me think, what would it be like if this was permanent, I thought, what if instead of just just six weeks, this was indefinite? And the same word is used again in verse 26 to describe the way in which the prophets of Baal leaped or danced. It says, then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it, and they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they they leaped, they pesach. They danced about the altar which they had made. And so I don't think the, the two, two uses of the word limp or hobble there is, is accidental. I think that what Elijah is saying is your idol worship will continually hobble you. You're limping around like the prophets of Baal, trying to get the attention of a non-existent God. So Elijah, he demands, how long? 
How many more sermons? How many more Bible studies? Some of you have been in and around the church for a long time. You've heard the gospel over and over again, but you haven't come to Christ. You haven't confessed Him as Lord, as God, because there's some other God over your life. But I'm agnostic. I'm an atheist. The reality is that there's something ultimate, something central in your life that reigns over your heart, and if you're honest, you're afraid or you're unwilling to give that up. Some of you faithfully come every Sunday to worship God, but don't want to let go of some secret idolatry. You're hobbling and you're limping through life. And Elijah said, if God is God, why the hesitation? Why the indecision? Why the lack of commitment? If not now, when? For Elijah, theology leads to discipleship. Commitments have consequences. What we believe is played out in how we live. And how we live, it reveals our beliefs. So how are we living? What are the idols in our lives? It could be education or sports, your marriage, your independence, power, self-expression, beauty, achievement. Whatever you give your whole life for, that's your idol. If I only had blank, then I'd be happy. If I only had blank, I'd be worth something. If I only had blank, I could truly live a fulfilled life. Whatever you put in the blanks, that's your God. That's what you're living for. That's what you worship. Marriage may be in your blank or your dream job or being a better parent or having better kids or having fewer pounds or having more influence. Many of these things are good desires, but they're not meant to be God's. And so, if you try to get your happiness, your worth, your fulfillment, your fire from anything but the true God, you will be lame all your life. The world may call it a dance. God calls it a limp. And do we really just want to limp around for the rest of our lives? Jump down to verse 28. So they cried with a loud voice, and they cut themselves according to their custom, with swords and lances, until the blood gushed out on them. And, and in the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Mesopotamian cultures, they believed that the shedding of blood, especially the self-mutilation, it would get the attention or it would get the pity of the gods. And so cutting themselves was their custom in service to a false god. And so they're literally destroying their bodies. They're low on blood. No wonder they're, they're hobbling, they're limp, limping around. Now, Old Testament law prohibits these actions. This is a protection for God's people. Thank God that His love isn't dependent on our self-flagellation or the ability to put on a show to get His attention. Now, what is going on when we say to ourselves or, or we hear someone say, I know that God has forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. We've all heard that or, or maybe said that. There's a higher God at play here. If Christ died to save you, but that's not enough, there's some image or control or achievement idol, some other expectation you have to save you that is your spiritual master. That is an idol God with no mercy. And you need to repent of following that false God. They can't deliver. They are unable to give you the salvation or the joy that they have promised to give you. The reality is that every idol who is not God will let you down, will disappoint you, 
and given enough devotion will destroy you. Augustine, in his book, The Confessions, he says, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, the essence of sin is this disordered love. Sin is, is love that is out of order. You're either giving something you shouldn't, you're giving them supreme love, or something that's supreme, you're giving something much less. And so, for example, should, should you love your career? Yeah, it's a good thing. We should want to work hard and support ourselves and support our families. Should you love your family? Yeah, absolutely. But if you love your career more than your family, you're out of order. You will lose your family, maybe your career as well. There will be breakdown in your life. If you make your career your idol, it's not going to die for your sins, but it's going to punish you, and it's going to ask for more and more. And so even good things that become ultimate things can be idols in our lives. Our loved ones, our spouses, our kids, our parents, living up to maybe their expectations, they just can all be idols. What gets you up in the morning? Is it to check how many likes are in your status update, your Instagram post, your TikTok? I have, I have teenage girls, sorry. What keeps you up at night? What is your worst nightmare? Maybe, maybe it's losing your job. Maybe it's losing your reputation. Maybe it's losing your family. What is the thing that if you lost it, it would make you lose the desire to live? Because meaning in life would be sucked out. All desire to be moved ahead, to move ahead would be gone. This is your idol. And I'm not saying that relationships are bad, far from it, right? If you're in love, if you're dating, you're engaged, you're in a good, healthy relationship, there's meaning, there's value. And when you break up, you'll definitely grieve. You'll be incredibly sad, and that's reasonable. But if it was the only source of your value, you'll be inconsolable. You'll want to end it all. And we've, guys, we've seen or we've heard people that put all their hope in something, and that something isn't God, and eventually they'll either lose it, or they'll be let down by it, or even having gained it, they'll, they'll realize that it didn't fix them, or heal them, or fulfill them, or make them happy. So your spouse cannot die for your sins. Making them your God won't end well for either of you. You have to love Christ more than we love our spouses, especially if we're in a good marriage. The reality is that one day, one of you will look at the other in the coffin, and they won't be able to help you when your heart is grieving. Only Jesus can. And so only through His Word and prayer and worship and encouragement from other believers can we be comforted. But not if our meaning, our idol, our God is dead. Again, Tim Keller says, idols, he says, idols will break your heart because no created thing can bear the freight of your deepest hopes and the weight of your soul's longing. And so honestly, the practice of idolatry, it's exhausting. Verse 29, it says, when midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice and no one answered and no one paid attention. There's this complete lack of response. But they had a devoted prayer life. They prayed long and passionately, but because they did not pray to a real God, it meant nothing. 
And the prophets of Baal did everything they could, to th- everything they could think of to get Baal's attention. From morning to at least mid-afternoon, this included ranting, ramping up the chanting and the cutting and the dut- dating, <laughs> dancing, until it was at a feverish pitch of blood and noise. And so beginning in verse 32, it says, so with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water flowed around the altar and also filled the trench with water. Here's a contest that is rigged in favor of Baal. This is Baal's wheelhouse, right? This is his domain where he's the strongest. He allegedly uh, controls lightning. Elijah says, light this. Even Mount Carmel was sacred ground for Baal worshipers, and the bluffs there were known for their high rainfall. But there is no place where God isn't God. The odds were 450 to 1. The prayers and the ritual acts of 450 prophets Baal versus Elijah. But the Lord doesn't need the numbers to be in His favor. Worship is commanded by God because it is good and it is right and is for our benefit. But He's not fueled by our praise. Yahweh's power is not dependent on His polling or the number of cheerleaders that He has. So it's dry wood versus soaked wood. A dry bowl versus a soaked bowl. A trench of water versus no trench of water. So think about this. God loves to be victorious when the odds are against him. Think of Joseph in prison right before he rules Egypt. Think of Gideon with his 300 just before he defeats the Midianite hordes. Think of Daniel in the lion's den. Think of Jesus on the cross. What about you and me, the church in our day and age, Christians in our culture? Do you feel overwhelmed? Do you feel outnumbered? Do you feel at a disadvantage? Be encouraged, guys. God loves to be at a disadvantage just before He wins. And so there is relief in the reality of God's sovereignty, and there's peace in knowing that He alone is Savior. Then verse 30, Elijah prays, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know you. Know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. So Baal was was the god of storms and rain. He was supposed to control thunder and lightning, which was thought to be fire from the sky. It would have definitely lit the wood. But Yahweh comes with pure fire. The prophets of Baal had passion and commitment, sincerity and devotion. They had great energy. What they did not have was a God in heaven who answered by fire. And so in contrast to all the elaborate and frantic ceremonial activities of the Baal's uh, prophets, Elijah's prayer is simple and it's direct 
and fire fell from the sky. I don't mean that, that Elijah wasn't earnest, but he knew God, and he knew that, that he didn't have to badger or coerce or manipulate God to get a hearing. And so in the same way, we're we are in danger of being like the prophets of Baal when we think, look, look, look at all I do. The reason God loves me is that I'm so sold out for the Lord. I come to church, I take notes on the sermon, I pray, I have my quiet time, I'm trying to obey the Ten Commandments. Surely God has to bless me. He has to answer my prayers. But that's moralism. That's legalism. Moral righteousness, holiness is a great thing. We should pursue it. But if you're turning that into the thing that saves you, you're trusting in the idol of morality instead of in God. And so let's be honest, we are incredibly busy. We just are. And our busyness is often an idol of keeping up with the Joneses or FOMO, fear of missing out, or keeping up appearances in a million other ways, keeping our, ki our kids happy all the time. These are exhausting because they're idols. Not only can idols exhaust us, but idols don't like to be challenged. They need to be sacrificed and protected. What are the things in our life that when threatened, we erupt, we explode with anger, with frustration? We may look good on the outside, but inside our, our idols are being toppled. Watch uh, when you've, you've worked hard all day long and you just want to sit down and you just want to relax and you just want to show and you keep getting interrupted by your family who needs your time and your attention. Can't they just leave you to worship at the idol of comfort? Can't they just leave you to worship at your idol of independence? What about those that keep you from having mastery over every single thing in your life? Don't we love that? Every area. But people are messy, even in the family of God. And those around us that need discipleship, that need mentoring, that need ministering to, are they in the way of your idol of control, your idol of achievement? They will slow you down. Because ultimately, idolatry undermines the gospel. Because behind every act of idolatry is a disbelief in the gospel. So Israel had not totally rejected the Lord, but was, they were adding, they were combining the worship of Baal with the worship of the true God. And Elijah was challenging them to serve the Lord wholeheartedly. And in the same way, if we're not fully trusting in Christ, we're trusting in something else. Oftentimes, our own skills, our abilities, our determination, our wealth, our status, that's nothing more than works righteousness, because behind every act of idolatry is not trusting that Jesus is and Jesus has done enough. What we're saying essentially is that, yeah, Jesus loves me, but this is what I got to have. This is what's going to really make me happy, and every one of us does this. We say that we're justified by grace, by Christ alone but this is what makes me feel safe. This is what makes me feel valuable. I'm wrapping up here, guys. I'm sorry. It's going long. Jonah 2 says, uh, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. They forfeit their own grace. 
but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. And so there's this strange dichotomy where idols are nothing. They're imaginary. They're worthless, and yet they have this power over us. They want to control us. So there's this spiritual battle going on in our hearts. In Colossians uh, 2, uh, Paul says, when you were dead in your transgressions, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out their certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them and through him. And so as God's children, we can no longer be intimidated and controlled by the threat of death and eternal separation from God. The battle is is not finished, but the devil's power over our lives is broken for those that trust in God. And so Christ died that we could be made alive in Him, and we could be forgiven. We could be free from death and the debt of sin so that we could trust fully in Him, which is better than any idol. Because God is real, we can overcome the allure of idolatry in our lives. Only in Christ do we have the fullness of life. Only in Christ are we restored. This is good news. So that Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so imagine that uh, you saw an older gentleman, and, and for some reason he had all these ropes and wires and string and whatever hanging off of him so that he couldn't walk right. He was stumbling about. There was weights, there was trash, there was junk tangled in it. And he said, how, do you, how did this happen? He says, I have no idea. And you help cut him free. And he stands up and he walks. He's got a skip in his step. And then you see him the very next day and the wires are back and the ropes are back and the weights are back and the trash is back. And this is us as we go to idolatry. This is the sin in our lives that's going to hobble us it's going to cripple us. God's desire is that, that we would run in this life. Let me pray. Father, um, thank you for your word today. God, we want to worship you alone. Help us to see the idols in our lives. Help us to topple them. God, do not let us be people, especially that hobble and limp around in our work our places of work and school and home, and then we get to the edge of the church parking lot, and we stand up, and we walk in straight, and we listen to a message, and then we walk back out, and we, as we get to the edge of the church parking lot again, that we, that we are crippled, and we are lame. God, we love you. Help us to expose the idols in our lives. Help us to get people around us that will help us do that, God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.